Welcome to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Janet Napolitano was Secretary of Homeland Security in the first Obama administration. Previously, she was governor of Arizona and is currently the president of the University of California. She applies her experience at Homeland Security to her new book, How Safe Are We? Homeland Security Since 9-11. Janet Napolitano, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, You know, it's interesting. Homeland Security, the entire uh, unit there, was a response to 9-11, and there has been precious little terrorism inside the United States since 9-11. But I saw a poll that said most Americans think we're less safe since 9-11. What what gives? You know, I don't. Uh, one can only speculate. Uh, um, uh, but um, you know, if in our politics there's kind of constant rhetoric about fear and invasions and things of that sort, you know, it obviously is going to affect people's opinions. You know, in answer to the question I raise in the title of of my book, "How Safe Are We?" What I argue is that um, in some areas we're much safer. Uh, for example. It is difficult to imagine a plot like what happened on 9-11 from succeeding in the United States today. Um, But other risks um, have continued to evolve and grow, the risks associated with global warming, the risks associated with cyber, the risks associated with mass gun violence, I I would put at the top of my list. I wanted to talk about immigration and deportation, and you were the head of Homeland Security during the largest deportations uh, from the U.S., and the Obama administration wanted to get tough on immigration, look tough on immigration, and get comprehensive immigration reform, and that didn't work out. Um, What happened there? I mean, in your mind, did this strategy backfire in the worst way? Yeah, it wasn't a strategy in the way that you posed the question. Uh, I know that uh, politically it's popular to say Democrats are for open borders and so forth, and uh, no, we aren't, and no, we weren't. Uh, And so what we did is we prioritized who would be deported. So we focused on those who'd committed other felonies, uh, uh, those who were known gang members or security risks, and those we apprehended right at the border. Um, and so um, within those three priorities, 90 percent of the deportations uh, occurred. Um, uh, that sense of prioritizing how you use that immigration law enforcement uh, uh uh, resource. Um, that's kind of been erased under the current administration. Well, just the idea that you can have this unit that is out there deporting people is relatively new to the United States. The, the, this um, ICE is a, is a new thing. Well, it was, uh, it was, it was an outgrowth of what pre- previously had been the INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service. Um, and, uh, you know, that was the arm. Uh, it was within the de- Department of Justice through which deportations occurred until the creation of the Department of Homeland Security and uh, the creation of ICE and Customs and Border Protection. Well, now we've got Democrats running on an abolish ICE platform. Uh, Is, you know, a lot of people look at it as, you know, this nefarious thing now and and people went on that platform. Uh, Is ICE beyond rehabilitation? Uh, uh, you know, I think that um, abolishing ICE would be a mistake. Um, 
Uh, actually, what the argument is is about just one small one one aspect of ICE, which is enforcement and removal operations (ERO). ICE actually covers a whole other gamut of law enforcement activities. Uh, but you know, the point of fact is is that the United States, like any country in the world, is entitled to uh, 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 determine who can. Uh, be in the country legally, and who can earn the right to citizenship. Uh, And that's what ICE does. But it has to be properly directed. It has to be uh, properly prioritized. It needs to be properly, um, I'll use the word controlled, um, to be as effective as it needs to be as a law enforcement organization, as opposed to uh, what we see now is, you know, kind of ice, um, you know, lingering around schools to pick up parents when they drop off their children or on the steps of courthouses when they come to uh, testify as witnesses to crimes or as victims of crimes, things of that sort. Well, who should do that? Should that be illegal to do? I mean, is, is there some kind of uh, it's not the Trump administration says, well, we're following the letter of the law. This is just how we're doing. You know, any law enforcement organization sets priorities. Um, That's why the Department of Justice doesn't do bad check cases. Writing a bad check, theoretically, is a federal crime. Uh, But what the Department of Justice does are bank fraud cases. Um, uh, You know, where do you uh, devote your resources? And in the immigration context, against whom do you throw the resources of the federal government? You know, it seems like ICE has been such a political thing with a bunch of the the, the union people endorsing President Trump. And uh, there's a lot of privatization in Homeland Security. And I was surprised to read that, um, you know, outside contractors are about half, more than half of out, of uh of Homeland Security is is that does that sound about right to you? That, that doesn't sound right to me. I don't know where you got that that number. Um, uh, but but uh, regardless, yeah, there are contracts. Uh, um, uh, you know, the Department of Homeland Security. Let's back up the bus a minute. The Department of Homeland Security was created in the wake of nine eleven. Uh, it brought together twenty two uh, formerly different agencies of different legacy departments: Treasury, Justice, Transportation, all under one umbrella. It was the largest reorganization of the federal government since the creation of the Department of Defense. Uh, it has two hundred and forty thousand some odd employees spread across the United. States and indeed across the world. Um, but to do all of its many functions, uh, and it's not an, it's not solely an immigration agency, although sure. that's all you hear about from the White House these days. But Homeland Security is cybersecurity. It's disaster response. It's planning for pandemics. Uh, it's all kinds of aspects that go into protecting the safety of the American people. But, I mean, the thing I wanted to get at was if you have these private entities like the Geo Group or Core Civic and um, all these kind of private detention facilities, and, you know, there were even uh, quotas for them to fill a certain number, their contracts were for a certain number of beds to be filled and things. Uh, if you've got those kind of things going on, do we have a kind of uh, uh, escalation, a private escalation of that never ends. It's it looks kind of more like the Defense Department, where you've got all these private contractors, and it, and it just becomes this bureaucratic thing that begins to corrupt the mission of the the organization. So I don't 
you know, I, don't, I would approach it uh, from a different aspect. You know, I would ask the question, um, uh, uh, is the Department of Homeland Security itself right-sized? Um, uh, uh, is it accomplishing the functions it was designed to function? Uh, is it maximizing our, uh, our safety and minimizing our risk? Um, and then to the extent it is contracting out, uh, uh, are appropriate standards being applied to contractors and um, are those being overseen effectively? So, I mean, if, if one of ICE's private detention facility um, people was, was donating half a million dollars to the Trump inauguration, I, I would be uncomfortable with that. Yeah. So, um, yes. And, you know, there are rules governing how you do procurement and contracting out is procurement. You're uh, procuring a detention space. The Department of Justice, the Bureau of Prisons uh, also does uh, – uh, uh, similar things, and uh, uh, believe me, I you know I I'm not no fan of the private incarceration industry. I think that's uh, it's um, just a, a wrong theory of how we do detention and, and incarceration generally. Um, uh, but nonetheless, um, there are standards that have to apply and ethics that should be adhered to. I'm talking with Janet Napolitano. Her new book is How Safe Are We? Homeland Security Since 9-11. You mentioned in your book uh, some regret about rescinding a report on right-wing extremism and disbanding the unit that looked into domestic terrorism. Um, Why did you end up doing that? How big a threat do you think domestic terrorism is now? Well, I think it's a growing uh, threat. And uh, we released a report early in in the Obama administration. It actually had been uh, um, um, started under the Bush administration. But it it warned of the growing risk of right-wing extremism. Uh, And it had some language in footnotes that returning military veterans were particularly susceptible to such recruitment. Uh, and the veterans organizations uh, got very upset uh, and that we were characterizing all veterans as you know somehow um, uh, frothing at the mouth or what have you. Um, and this and became so a big deal in right wing media. It, it did, and uh, so you know we uh, apologized, withdrew the report, so it could be rewritten. But the key point to be made is that what the, the the general gist of the report was prescient. Uh, and uh, it said we were seeing a rise in right-wing extremism, and indeed we have continued to see it rise uh, over the last years. Well, is there a place in Homeland Security for a unit that looks at domestic terrorism? Is that, a, is that their function? Is that another agency's function? Um, it, it's the function. It's within DHS. It's within the FBI. Um, uh, there are different places within the federal government that uh, uh, look at this, look at these groups. Um, you know, it's you know, it's a it's a difficult task uh, to parse uh, what are First Amendment protected activities uh, versus those that cross the line into uh, law enforcement and actual uh, conspiracies to commit violent crime and so forth. 
Um, to go back to the the topic that I started with, the poll that said most people feel less safe now. Um, if people look at the homeland security situation and they see um, things being made for decisions being made on political grounds, if if you know people are you know worried about domestic terrorism but withdrawing reports about it, if people are uh, involved in uh, detentions and uh, deporting people, uh, and this is made; these are things that are made for political reasons. You're trying to um, achieve an immigration, comprehensive immigration reform. Is that um, are those things not to the mission of what the organization should be? The mission should be safety of Americans, and it shouldn't be political decisions. Does, does Homeland Security get involved in too many political decisions? Well, we try not to, and it should not be. But I'll give you a, an example. So um, you would think uh, uh, today that the number one security risk to the American people are the conditions at the southwest border. Um, and and it's not. The border is a zone to be managed. Um, it's 1,940 miles. Uh, it's dotted with ports of entry through which thousands of vehicles travel on a daily basis. Mexico's our third leading trading partner. Um, and then in between the ports are vast expanses of public land, private land, sovereign Indian nation land. The notion that you're going to build a wall along that expanse and uh, somehow stop all illegal immigration uh, is is – it's, it is a symbol. It's not a strategy. Uh, a real strategy at the border requires strengthening the ports with the best available technology and manpower and then staffing between the ports of entry with adequate manpower, technology, sensors, tunnel detection equipment, air cover, drones, uh, and so forth. That's a strategy. One of the things I didn't know about you when before I read the book was that you were on Anita Hill's legal team. Mm-hmm. And you assembled the women to corroborate her testimony, women that were never called to testify. And you said in the book, you to this day do not know why. Mm-hmm. Um, you were serving with Joe Biden in the Obama administration. You never asked. You never – thought I should uh, ask Joe Biden why he didn't call my my people. Uh, uh, No, we never actually talked about the hearing. And um, so I'm often asked now how I feel about Vice President Biden and his and his uh, approach uh, to the hearing. And I think he regrets his reproach approach. I think he uh, um, has conceded that errors were made as as they were. Um, I also think, uh, to be uh, fair, that um, his entire record needs to be uh, evaluated in the course of his candidacy and um, you know, his uh, leading sponsorship of the Violence Against Women Act, his, his um, uh, hiring and promotion of women within his own staff and the like. So um, uh, uh, it's – you know, it's, it's – um, uh, it was a terrible hearing. I'll just put it that way. It was and, terrible. 
then we still get to have terrible hearings with with the Kavanaugh hearing. Yeah, it's like the Senate learned no lessons. Uh, And uh, even as uh, workplaces around the country were adopting new policies and training on sexual harassment, um, uh, more litigation has ensued and and so forth. It's like the Senate as an institution uh, did not change. Janet Napolitano was the head of Homeland Security during the first Obama administration, and her book is How Safe Are We? Homeland Security Since 9-11. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Iran says it's going to pull out of some aspects of the nuclear deal if it doesn't get sanctions relief. We'll discuss the postures of Iran and the U.S. after the break. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Iranian President Hassan Rouhani gave a speech on national television and said that Iran's going to pull out of some aspects of the nuclear deal if it doesn't get sanctions relief. We're going to talk about what's happening with Iran with Juan Cole. He is professor of history at the University of Michigan. He publishes the Informed Comment blog, and his latest book is Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. Thanks for joining us, Juan. Thanks for having me on. Well, um, what happened here? I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of pressure on Iran with U.S. sanctions, and the U.S. says it's planning more sanctions, and the U.S. is sending aircraft carriers. And uh, Hassan Rouhani has um, come back and and says he's going to pull out of aspects of the nuclear deal. What happened with Iran here? Well, to be fair to Rouhani, I think he didn't say he's going to pull out of any of the nuclear deal that was agreed to with the UN Security Council in 2015. He said that there were a few steps that Iran had taken as good faith measures beyond the text of the Joint Comprehensive Plan. And that those steps, which were not stipulated in the actual text of the agreement, uh, they would now uh, move away from. And he's doing that to put pressure on Europe, I think. And he says that the European powers, Russia and China, have 60 days to meet their financial and oil commitments to the deal. Um, do you, is that a, a logical thing to do? Can, can they meet their requirements of the deal? Well, what he's saying is that Iran uh, mothballed its nuclear enrichment program. Uh, it uh, it took away 80% of its capacities. And uh, it did that in return for the abolition of international economic sanctions on Iran, which had been placed there by both the UN and the Obama administration. Uh, Trump uh, breached the deal, uh, he, he, he having the U.S. signed it, and, and Trump just pulled out of it and then slapped even more severe uh, uh, economic sanctions on Iran. So Iran feels like they gave up 80% of what they had in order to get something. They haven't gotten it. 
So they're going back to the rest of the world and saying, look, you can't knuckle down uh, to Trump's pressure and refuse to trade with us or let us sell oil. Uh, you have to stand up to Trump or else, you know, why would we uh, why would we not reestablish some of our capacity? Well, uh, do the do these countries have the stuff to stand up to the sanctions? Because, uh, you know, it seems like if you look at Iran's economic figures, they're they're looking pretty bad. They're going down and uh, the sanctions are being effective. Uh, the workaround by Europe doesn't seem to be doing much. And um, do these countries have what it takes to give Iran some satisfaction? Yeah, well, unfortunately, it's not really in national government's hands because the U.S. Treasury Department is threatening third-party sanctions. So if you're a French refrigerator company and you sell refrigerators to Iran and you sell refrigerators in the United States, uh, the Treasury Department will fine you uh, maybe a billion dollars and then you go bankrupt. So you have a choice of dealing with Iran or the United States. Iran has a small economy. The United States has a vast economy. Which would you choose? There you go. Now, um, what do you think the um, U.S. is attempting to do here? I mean, the, the, obviously the U.S. is going to put some more sanctions on. They, they call it maximum pressure. But, um, I, you know, Stephen Walt had an interesting piece in Foreign Policy. He said, well, maximum pressure to what end? And he speculated about five options. And I thought I'd ask you about them. I mean, one is um, pressure to get Iran to sign a new deal. Um, do you think that there is a possibility that the U.S. would uh, take Iran up? And Iran talks about, you know, talking to the U.S. again within the framework of the nuclear deal that it exists. But um, is there a chance that uh, the U.S. and Iran would get together and sign a new deal? No. Iran signed a deal and the U.S. breached it. So why would they trust the United States to sign another deal? Wouldn't the U.S. just breach that one too? I mean, well, the Iranians feel like they're being taken for a ride here. Now, uh, the other option is regime change. That's a possibility as a bottom line. I mean, certainly John Bolton and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo have talked about this uh, before. Do you think the ultimate uh, idea here is regime change? Well, I, I, they, they would love regime change. Uh, the, the, getting regime change through sanctions is extremely difficult. People have crunched the numbers on this, and it's a very low likelihood of success uh, so that's not very likely either. Unless the only way you could, you could get rid of that regime is to invade, like like Bush did Iraq. Uh, and I think Bolton and Pompeo would be perfectly happy to do that. I I don't know if the country would go along. All right. So the, another one of his uh, options or thoughts was create a pretext for preventative war. Is all this a pretext for starting a war? Yes. Well, the Pompeo and uh, Bolton faction, the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor in the Trump administration, are preparing the ground for uh, for war. Uh, and so uh, they're being provocative. Uh, they're, um, if Iran has uh, ever spoken kindly about a Shiite militia in Iraq, and if that militia comes into any conflict with U.S. troops, then they're going to blame Tehran for it, say we should bomb Tehran as a result. Uh, so they're they're going to try to frame Iran, basically, and also to uh, do provocative things that might elicit a response from some hot-headed uh, Iranian commander. Uh, so uh, the, the fix is in from their point of view. If they can get a rise out of Iran, 
and they can use that uh, as a Gulf of Tonkin kind of pretext, then, uh, then they'll do it. I'm talking with Juan Cole, professor of history at the University of Michigan, and we're talking about Iran. Iran says it is going to um, not observe some aspects of the nuclear deal that uh, it was observing before, and if the sanctions and if they don't get some sanctions relief. And um, the, the final uh, idea that um, Stephen Walt put forth in his foreign policy article, trying to figure out the U.S. bottom line, is is containment uh, plus. Uh, and he thinks that this is probably the most likely scenario and that they just want to keep Iran down, keep Iran shrinking and uh, make it lose its ability to project its power. Is that kind of thing most likely? Well, I, first of all, I, I disagree slightly with my good colleague, uh, Stephen, in the sense that I, I think Trump has told us what he's about. He wants the Iranians out of Syria and Iraq. Uh, he, he wants a geopolitical change so that those are no longer Iranian spheres of influence and Lebanon as well. Uh, and he, uh, he wants uh, Iran to stop uh, uh, backing the Hezbollah militia in southern Lebanon and Syria. Uh, and um, he wants, uh, well, uh, they, they think that Iran is behind Yemen. I don't agree with them, but he wants them out of Yemen. Uh, that is to say, the, the point of this is a geopolitical political shrinkage of Iran's reach in the region uh, and on behalf of both of the United States and then of its allies, Israel and Saudi Arabia. Uh, and the, the likelihood that they can get that by putting these severe sanctions on the Iranian oil exports uh, is low because what Iran is doing is relatively low cost and a lot of it is soft power. So... Uh, Shiites in Iraq have a fellow feeling with I Iran. It doesn't cost them very much money to support them. Uh, the al-Assad government in Syria is widely isolated and needs Iran, uh, and uh, it, it would have fallen without without uh, Hezbollah help. So uh, I don't think that the scale is right. That is to say, the kind of pressure that the United States is exercising Arms Iran. It does set back its economic development. It, it causes inflation. It hurts the Iranian middle classes. It, it, it can't interfere with Iran's uh, geopolitical soft power. Uh, so, so ultimately, do you think that the, the Obama or the um, Trump administration is conflicted about its goals with Iran? That I mean, we've got the. Bolton Pompeo wing who would be happy with regime change and then we've got Donald Trump who would be happy with Iran changing would completely capitulating its foreign policy um it, it um it, it's an odd mixture of goals they don't really have a bottom line that's right well it's typical of this administration we have a bifurcated administration uh, so Trump says one thing about Russia, his foreign policy establishment says another. Uh, Trump says one thing about uh, about China, his foreign policy uh, establishment says another. So for, for Trump, I think Iran is a problem like China. Uh, Iran is a free rider. It's getting a really good deal from the United States. Uh, we have to punish it in various ways uh, to uh, make it accept a less good deal from the United States. Uh, and and he, he feels that way, I think, about China as well. If you just uh, hit them where it hurts with tariffs and uh, and so forth, you can make them put their heads down 
and make sure the United States gets the best deal in the relationship. So th that's not at all uh, what, uh, what the foreign policy uh, hawks in his administration like Bolton and Pompeo think. They, think, they don't think Iran is, is, is getting a, a better deal than it deserves from the United States. They think Iran shouldn't be there. Uh, and uh, we, we, they should position uh, the United States government to uh, to change Iran, uh, and uh, by any means necessary. Uh, so the, the, they don't they're not on the same page with Trump. But the problem is that Trump is erratic uh, and uh, agrees with the last person he talked to, and it's not impossible that Bolton and Pompeo can put one over him and get what they want. I wonder if uh, we could talk for a second about Mike Pompeo and his trip to Iraq. You wrote about it in your informed comment blog today. Um, it's a strange thing to have a secretary of state make a surprise visit to Iraq. And, and he was there essentially to tell them uh, to not help Iran. I, you know, it almost uh, de defies um, logic. Yes. Well, th that's, you know, the United States uh, – uh, right-wing security establishment has never understood Iraq, uh, even after ruling it for for so many years, and uh, so they don't. They do, they they genuinely think if you put a little pressure on the Iraqis, you can separate them from Iran, uh, and this is just not true. Of course, it, uh, I I used to say in the old days of Iraq War that uh, you know when the Bush administration demanded that uh, the Iraqis cut off Iran, sort of like demanding that the Irish cut off the Vatican. Uh, and uh, it's just not going to happen. Uh, so um, th this visit to, to Baghdad, I think, was partly for the security of U.S. troops because Pompeo is convinced, and I, I, I think he's just being hysterical, that he's got intelligence that an Iranian-backed group might be plotting to hit U.S. troops in Iraq. Uh, and so he just wants reassurance from Baghdad that they won't let that happen, and he got it. Uh, that then he put pressure on Iran to, uh, to on Iraq to cut off Iran, and uh, Prime Minister um, uh, Adel, uh, Abdel Mahdi came out and said that the, the Iraq would not uh, cooperate with any boycott of any neighboring country. Um, if, how uh, I mean, are you optimistic that things can keep percolating like they are now and not um, become catastrophically worse? Oh, sure. It, it's possible that things would just uh, go on like this for a while. You know, uh, in my view, we, we're in a period very much like 2007, eight, the last two years of the Bush administration. It was very clear that then uh, Vice President Dick Cheney was uh, angling for uh, a military action with Iran uh, before they went out of office. And uh, in early 2007, Bush sent uh, a couple of aircraft carriers to the Gulf uh, to show the flag and try to intimidate Iran, just as uh, Pompeo and Bolton are doing today. Uh, so it's a very similar kind of set of st strategies. And, of course, Bolton was, was part of those strategies as well in the Bush administration. So uh, it didn't amount to anything in the end. Nothing happened. Uh, and uh, it's, not, it's not for sure that Bolton and Pompeo will get the war they apparently want, uh, uh, even uh, though they're conniving at it. Juan Cole is professor of history at the University of Michigan. He's publisher of the Informed Comment blog, and his latest book is Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. Nice talking with you, Juan Cole. It's always great being on with you.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Last week, Worldview met with a group of Chicago-based lawyers, social workers, and psychologists who work with survivors of sexual violence. They watched scenes from a film called The Prosecutors about the people who seek justice for victims of rape in conflict areas. All this week, we're bringing you excerpts of those conversations. Here's a scene where a Bosnian prosecutor is meeting with some caseworkers. I invited you today to this meeting of the Section for War Crimes because when we look at it formally, our office is considered successful because we processed all of our cases. However, when we consider the large amount of women and men who are raped, we see that the number is much higher than that which we have processed. I was at a meeting where there was talk about 1,000 women and men who are raped speaking in general terms in this particular area of the Federation. This is the reason why the prosecutor's office is the first one that will take steps to reach out directly to victims. What I'm interested to know is if you have any active cases of sexual violence right now. I think there's one in connection with Sama, is that right? Yes. The investigation has been completed, the medical records we need have been collected, and other materials, evidence, and... Did she clearly identify the perpetrator? Yes. Did she give a statement? Yes, yes, yes. Yes. It sounds like a social worker taking on the role of an investigator, which would seem to be you know, possibly improper or mission creep. Um, on the other hand, you know, to compare it to the United States, um, if you look at pretrial services officers and probation officers, um, they are typically trained as social workers, um, and they are, branch, they are part of the judicial branch. Um, so their role is considered to be one and the same as that of the judge, and that includes doing uh, preparing pre-sentence investigation reports, reports related to conditions of release on bond, um, and they do actually have an investigative role. Um, So it's not clear to me, again, that it's improper. That was the voice of Juliet Sorensen, associate dean at the Northwestern School of Law, reacting to scenes from the film The Prosecutors. There will be a screening of the film next Monday at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Worldview's Steve Bynum will moderate the conversation with director Leslie Thomas and other stakeholders in the realm of conflict-related sexual violence. That's the uh, prosecutors next Monday at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. And Global Notes with Catalina Maria Johnson, and that is Kermit Ruffin. Sounded yeah. good. Yeah, it was, well, a jazz fest in New Orleans turned 50 this year, and it's the grand dame of all festivals. There's really nothing quite like it. Uh, so I had to start with the classic New Orleans uh, trumpeter, composer, singer, and of course the classic song, Kermit Ruffin's doing 
when the saints come marching in, and I, and I got to see him live uh, this year. Last year, I, I went to his barbecue joint, <laughs> wow. but didn't get to see him live. But this year, he packed the economy, um, economy hall tent, and uh, this is a great one of the many tents in New Orleans. They get 425,000 people over the Jazz Fest. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's the kind of classic one. And this is kind of the older folk. There's a dance floor, but people get up and, and take the umbrellas and parade. And it's just one of the most joyful, the most joyful and the highest artistry festivals that one can attend. You know, when I take a look at pictures of it, it looks kind of casual oh, uh, in, it its, <laughs> in its uh, tentiness. And the, you're out there in the rain and the mud sometimes. It's sometimes. And it's got some... It's got some, it seems a little uh, gritty on the festival universe. Well, it's a fairgrounds. So, yeah. And if it rains, which happens in New Orleans, uh, it happened once this morning. They One morning, they started a little late. Yeah, it gets a little muddy. Everybody, you can tell, you know, the experts say the pros have rain boots. <laughs> and uh, But there's a blues tent. There's a gospel tent. There's a jazz tent. There's this economy hall tent. There's huge stages. There's small stages. Um, you just... And there's just glorious music from everywhere. So let's hear some. Who, who do we? Who'd you hear this time? Well, uh, besides the traditional, there's also always some discoveries. Now, this was not a total discovery for me, but it was for a lot of people. She moved on to a bigger stage, Kansas City, Missouri's Samantha Fish, amazing blues vocalist, guitarist, and this is her live, not at Jazz Fest, but you get some of that energy. I put a spell on you. Samantha Fish, I put a spell on you. Whoa. Right. And uh, I mean, she's kind of like got the, this Amy Winehouse-ish type phrasing. She looks like Marilyn Monroe and she plays a mean guitar and sings. As, and she does this all in like, I don't know, five inch stiletto heels. <laughs> so uh, she's a force uh, to be reckoned. And I think we're going to really hear a lot from her down the line. All right, Samantha Fish. And um, next we're swinging over for uh, a, a group I, I know nothing about. I've, ne- I've never heard the name, the War and Treaty. That made both of us before I went to Jazz Fest. I had no <laughs> idea. This was, I was just walking by the blues tent and you just kind of pop in or if you hear something, you kind of, and I was like, what is that? This These just 
amazing voices and they were intertwining and it was very raw but fierce and walked in and this was a total discovery, the War and Treaty, DC-based and, and fascinating. It's a couple, Michael and Tanya Trotter, and what's fascinating is he was a, a soldier in the Rocky War and he was encouraged to go into music by his captain who who died and, and then he wrote a song for his captain and they heard it and they he became a songwriter for the fallen during wow. the Iraqi war and uh, talks about, you know, in, in the writing, in the description, there's a, you know, the trauma of that. Well, but he met Tanya. Well, that explains the heavy name. The war and treaty is not your typical right, name. But this album is, is about the healing power of music, the healing force. And this is a, they're, uh, these are amazing voices. They're a couple. They have children in D.C.-based, the war and the treaty, and uh, definitely put them on your radar. This is Jeep Cherokee Laredo. Let's ride this thing, yeah. I guess I put my foot right in my mouth. Whoa, whoa. We're talking about some of the music from the New Orleans Jazz Festival with Catalina Maria Johnson, and that's The War and Treaty off their album Healing Tide. Wow. Yeah, they're amazing. Um, just can stop you in your tracks. Um, the festival is such a glorious abundance of everything, including food. Some of the most amazing. You have to plan your food out, just like you plan your <laughs> stages. There's a logistics to it all. But, oh, yeah, like oysters. Like, I've never gotten so stuffed on oysters. I, like, I couldn't eat any more oysters. Pecan, uh, catfish, and just amazing food, amazing music. The Some discoveries. Uh, a lot of tradition there. Was, uh, Diana Ross was there. Really? Mavis Staples. Chaka Khan put on a fierce show. I didn't choose them to bring because I figured we all, if we all know them. But I've never seen Chaka Khan live. My goodness. And Diana Ross, I mean, her catalog, just, it was like some of these were like sing alongs, at least the boomer sing alongs. <laughs> yeah. Just everybody singing every song. And the Rolling Stones were scheduled to be there, but I they know. had to cancel for, I know. for mixed that, surgery. I know. I know. And then Fleetwood Mac canceled. So for a while it was looking glum, but. Jazz Fest, all, I mean, they've, they've been doing this for 50 years. There's a reason for, for their... Those people are just a little glitter on the, on the, on the real music. <laughs> yeah, and this is another uh, local New Orleans band that won the Tiny Desk, NPR's Tiny Desk concert. And they have a concept album coming in. I, I saw part of it there, and I saw part of it in the evening after Jazz Fest. This is Tank and the Bongas from their brand new Colors Change. And there was a lot of green, a lot of green balloons, green clouds, green... And it there is a theme of changes to the color green, uh, and it has to do with weed and money, <laughs> <laughs> relationships with both as they become uh, very famous. So this is Tank and the Bongas from their Green Balloon, and the song is Colors Change. Was I too much or too tough for thinking that everything I did wasn't simply not enough? 
Tank and the Bangas off their album Green Balloon, one of the performers at the New Orleans Jazz Festival. What a the sweet change of pace that is. Yeah, and it was a very dreamy, spacey kind of set. Um, it was interesting, uh, not just because of the performance of it and the artistry in terms of just the visuals, but as well as the music. But it was like the album is like one long variation on a theme. But it's a beautiful theme. Colors change. Tank and the bongas. Next, we go to the really jazzy portion right. of the, the the New Orleans Jazz Festival. Well, there's been... plenty of jazz. I mean, people are like, what? Diana Ross, Chaka Khan. There's plenty of jazz. I mean, they have, I don't know, five or so large stages. I don't four or five large tents. I mean, they... they they handle 425,000 people over the course of two weekends. They, there's plenty of jazz of all kinds. And this is some, of course, of uh, hip, hipster new jazz in a way. I mean, one of the up, – not up and coming, but one of the superstars of uh, the jazz world, Kamasi Washington, who is coming to Chicago in a very unique tour configuration with Herbie Hancock. Cool. Who is also, so I wanted to uh, – Seeing him live there was, you know, this is very heady music, and uh, there were it was packed and it was sunny and it was sweaty, and we heard Kamasi Washington. This is connections from his album Heaven and Earth. Kamasi Washington off his album Heaven and Earth uh, doing some really nice jazz and he'll be at Northerly Island later with Herbie this summer. Hancock in August yeah yeah that's mm-hmm. an amazing tour that's a yeah I think not to be missed quite sure. good luck <laughs> we're talking about the New Orleans Jazz Festival with Catalina Maria Johnson and um, we're swinging around to maybe our our final musical choice here right and I don't want to say that besides the music there's some really amazing interviews on the Allison Minor stage so you can it's it's really a, a very complete package uh, New Orleans Jazz Fest 50 years old happy birthday and and like everybody, when you're walking down the street, it's like a holiday. People are saying, Happy Jazz Fest. Happy Jazz Fest. <laughs> you, you would recommend this for a visit for people. Oh. Tony Sarabia always did it and brought his kids and yeah, loved it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's got something for everybody and uh, just can't go wrong. And um, our final little piece of music here, what do we got? We've got Big Chief Got a Golden Crown. This is the Wild Chapatulas because one of the main... But one of the most beautiful things is seeing the Mardi Gras Indian 
formed bands or original originating bands that are have Native American and African American heritage in their full ceremonial garb, um, parading um, and playing on the stages. So this is always a treat. So we're going to go out on some classic wild chapatulas. Shout it loud! Oh, shout for the eagle with the golden crown! The Wild Chapatulas, and that'll conclude our look at the New Orleans Jazz Festival with Catalina Maria Johnson, hosts of Beat Latino. Sounds like fun. Uh, I, I think uh, everybody should go. <laughs> For sure. 51 next year, and uh, here's to many more. Happy birthday, Jazz Fest. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to be talking about Turkey. Uh, there's been some controversial redo of the elections in Istanbul. We'll discuss that. We're also going to talk a bit with some Filipino labor, labor organizers and human rights guys who came to Chicago specifically for May Day. They wanted to be here for May Day, and they were, and I will talk with them about their reverence for this uh, Chicago event and for some of the troubles that are going on in the Philippines. We'll talk about labor situations and some of the killings around around the war on drugs in the Philippines. So that's uh, tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Oh, my, the